we have so many emails. We have no emails. Someone email us. We'd love to hear from you. We want to talk with you. We want to hear what you love. Who is listening to this podcast that we send into the void? <laughs> Welcome back to Are You Watching Closely? I'm Spencer Channel. And I'm Mallory Strom. I'm a writer, composer, and IMDb nerd. I'm an artist, mathematician, and I use Netflix as a nightlight. <laughs> and my <laughs> microphone is currently propped up on a copy of Plato's Symposium, uh -huh. uh, a the collection of, of short stories. stories. Yeah. Lord of the Rings and what looks like a biography, like collection of Benjamin Franklin's writings. Yep. We're just nerdy people <laughs> who uh, read a lot and read into things a lot uh -huh. and pay really close attention to uh, entertainment uh -huh. things. And so this podcast is uh, our place to put our analysis of, mm -hmm. of the things that we watch closely. And uh, also a thing to do with these microphones that we don't quite have a way to prop up yet except for a <laughs> stack of books. It's very intimate. <laughs> We're very close mm -hmm. uh, in that our production is just basically us with a couple of mics. And we're also very close, as in we're watching very closely the favorite, uh -huh. our favorite film and TV episodes. Um, we just sit down and watch them together and then break them down for you from the perspectives uh, that we take and uh, the experiences we have and the things we know. And our goal is to use a, a close viewing of, of our, our favorite TV and films to become better writers and artists and, and, and creators ourselves mm -hmm. um, and to become closer with each other and maybe uh, help you become closer with uh, the people you watch closely with. Yeah, and we believe that watching more closely enhances the value of the things you're watching. So maybe even you become closer with the your favorite film and TV and notice things you didn't see before yeah. and it, you become even, uh, yeah tighter with your best friends tv and film <laughs> they'll never let you down yeah <laughs> except when they do <laughs> except for when your uh, phone runs out of battery in the middle of the night and uh, can't light the way anymore mm -hmm. i was thinking more in the lines of like uh, critical critically like uh, mm. uh, fail you know and, but yeah, that's, that's not what this podcast is about it's not about yeah. good or bad it's about what is it <laughs> <laughs> That's the show. What is it? Today we are we've watched Steve Jobs and we're going to break down uh, mm -hmm. Steve Jobs. Yeah. That has got to be the weirdest intro uh, yet. Episode 5. Off to a good start. Um so Steve Jobs is actually the film that we were watching when you first said Movies are great if you watch them. Yeah. If I don't remember, if you remember back to episode one, that was something we quoted of like sort of our philosophy behind it was that, you know, we were watching a, a, a show in our dorm room, in a dorm room at Vanderbilt. And I said something like film and TV or like film is really good when you watch it. Mm -hmm. And it's like true. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the thing we were watching and it's especially rewarding. This is a film where it's like very rewarding to be like, watching critically and paying attention partly because mm -hmm. like my impression of it is it's very artful for one thing. Yeah. Like it is very crafted. Um, you can see like specific choices 
if you're if you're watching and you're thinking about the implications of little details, um, it really adds up to be a more rewarding experience than if you just kind of passively let it play. Yeah, and I think it's especially good for close viewing because the concept is so simple in itself. It's three product launches in three different locations, um, and it's just like backstage immediately before uh, the product launch begins. And of course, there's some uh, like flashbacks and things intercut, but the, the structure seems so simple to me that it's really the details that are complex and rewarding and interesting. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's unusual, like you're, it is really simple, but it's also very strange because it's not structured in a traditional like Hollywood there's no, there's not a traditional film structure there. It's like, mm. it's like a character study that is told in three acts. Um, uh-huh. but there's not like a plot to follow. Yeah. It just sort of explores facets of Steve Jobs's r- relationships and his like strengths and weaknesses and, and damages and, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more just kind of exploring him and as it should be, it's a biopic, you know, but right. it's not like the story of like Steve Jobs's career. It's just, uh, putting all the necessary characters into these locations at these times to uh-huh. tease out, uh, various elements of who Steve Jobs is, you know, as a character as he's represented in this film, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's not so much three act structure. It's more like. Uh, this American Life, Act One of our program, exactly the Flint Center. <laughs> I, I I do a pretty mean Ira Glass impression. I'm not going to do it right now because I love Ira Glass too much to to uh, impersonate him on a podcast to 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 put out in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but asking about it, I'll do it sometime. Um, the <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not three act structure as as a form, right? Um, uh-huh. cause like, what is the midpoint? Like what is, right. there's no, there's no thing that changes the status quo. And there's, there's not like, you know, all of these, uh, rising action, climax, falling action. Like mm-hmm. if, if those emotional beats exist, they're merely that they're emotional beats mm-hmm. and they're not like plot beats. Um, there's no plot point one, plot point two. There's just kind of aspects of, his life, uh, you know, that come to confront him. Yeah. Um, in a, in a way that hits certain emotional beats, but it feels like the movie is, uh, motivated not by telling a story as in hitting the plot details as much as it's motivated by taking you on an emotional journey by hitting Mm. emotional beats about like Steve Jobs's life and relationships. And for that, like, I really love it. I think it's another thing that makes it seem so artful is that like, it really, it lets itself just kind of breathe and explore these things in a, in a very well paced and sort of, um, a very specific and detailed way, as opposed to like trying to rush to, you know, like get to the next story beat. Cause there's not really even a story to be told. It's more just, Let's explore Steve. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also with regards to a lot of the other characters in the film, there isn't really a story to be told, especially Lisa, since we see her at like pretty like disparate points in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, she's five um, in the first act, and then she's what maybe a few years older, and then she's 19. And you can't really trace a, a, a story and you can't really trace a cohesive story with 
Steve Jobs and Lisa's relationship because it's it's disjointed in a way. Um, but you can trace an emotional journey and like how these different versions of Lisa affect Jobs in different ways and and in that way sort of guide him uh, uh, along the emotional journey that we're kind of going on with him. Yeah, I'm with you there. I feel like we do learn about things that happened, you know, in between those disjointed sort of cross sections mm-hmm. that, that the the movie creates when we do these three different acts. But I, I feel like we learn we learn about their relationship and what has transpired between those acts, but only the things that are relevant to the specific um, like arc that we're that we're depicting, you know. Right. Um, not we as an audience, but they, that what they're depicting more accurately. But it's like, you know, we do learn a lot about their relationship and we learn about like, you know, uh, Andy Hertzfeld and, and him paying for Lisa's, you know, school expenses. And that happened in the interim, you know, Mm -hmm. but we learn about it because it's important, uh, you know, as it relates to Steve's flaw as a, um, as a parent, you know, Right. Um, and that's the arc we track. And so that's why we learn about it. But there's, I'm sure a lot of other things that have transpired that we just, uh you know, it just, it's just not relevant. And so like, it's cool because the movie does that filtering for us and it kind of sorts it through. It definitely has like a thesis, you know, like it definitely is, I I don't want to say it has an agenda, but I will say like it, it, it is showing a certain like side of Steve jobs, certain aspects of his life and teasing Mm -hmm. out sort of a compelling narrative from those things. Um, and so it's obviously it's not a documentary like it's not it's not meant to accurately show a, a full picture of Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. It's it's there to tell a really uh, compelling story like like Shakespeare, you know, used to tell about kings. And, mm. you know, it's the same sort of idea still uh, today. Aaron Sorkin is taking a, a, a celebrated public figure and. Um, turning his story, his life, details from his life into mythology um, mm-hmm. so that he can be mythologized and memorialized and so that we, you know, can remember him for certain aspects and return to this story as, like, a sense of Steve Jobs as yeah. opposed to, like, you know, an accurate historical uh, right. <laughs> presentation. It's not a history book, but it is a history in the way that Henry IV is a history, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's so much cultural value to that. Um, and some people, I think, responded initially when this film came out by saying that, like, oh, this is so opportunistic. Like, they're just trying to make big money off of, like, Steve Jobs, who had recently passed away. Uh-huh. It had only been a couple of years. And then and this movie was, you know, close to finishing production. So people were like, wow, that timeline's really suspicious. You know, is, not, is Aaron Sorkin just going for a cash grab because Steve Jobs died? That's a little bit... Well, didn't, um, like three movies go for a cash grab when Steve Jobs died? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I've seen scenes from some of them, and they're terrible. And I, that's, I think that's the difference, is this one is, um, like, it's re- responsible mythology. It's, mm. like, doing the work of creating art to memorialize and to mythologize, and um, it's doing that work in a way that's really artful and and also not claiming to be anything more than it is like it's a it's an artful piece of film it's a biopic it's not supposed to be biography although it is extremely accurate you know but it's not the the accuracy isn't the point the point is like the sense of steve jobs that you walk out of the theater feeling and i definitely experienced that like whoa like i have a, a sense of a person that i didn't I didn't know before you know yeah the other thing that makes it feel responsible to me is that the character of Steve Jobs 
in this film is so complex and like not uh, completely sympathetic all the time and still compelling and um, and so while I do walk away with this sort of sense of Steve Jobs I'm not really sure what that sense is going to be until I get to the end of the movie because there are so many different ways of seeing this character um, in in each beat of the sort of story. The only thing you ever had to do to make me happy was to come home at the end of the day, six to five, and pick them. I'm the guy who can, and I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Does this uh, style of uh, dialogue sound familiar to you? (laughs) Well, it does to me. Those are all examples of what the internet has respectfully dubbed Sorkinisms. Uh Um, uh, Aaron Sorkin has a very distinct uh, voice uh, in his dialogue, in his writing. Um, some people have celebrated him for like having captured just American dialect in his characters um, and like laced with profanity and very repetitive and like ping-pongy. Um, Aaron Sorkin's dialogue is, you cannot miss it. Um, and he doesn't hesitate to remind you that you're watching a film that he wrote all the way through the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's inescapable that this film was written by Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> Just like it's inescapable that Aaron Sorkin wrote The Newsroom, um, that uh-huh. he wrote The West Wing, uh-huh. that he wrote A Few Good Men. The Social Network. Um, and currently on Broadway, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, adapted for the stage by Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin began in theater. Um, lots of people, I feel like, don't even, aren't aware of that. Maybe, maybe they are. But Aaron Sorkin started with A Few Good Men, which was a play that, uh, that, uh, for, it was for this, it was a stage play um, adapted into a screenplay. So he began in the theater. His writing is very theatrical. Um, it's mm. it's got a lot of like theatrical sensibility behind it. And I don't mean spectacular. I don't mean dramatic. I mean the the mechanisms of of a of a, a story that takes place on the stage. Um, and we definitely see that in Steve Jobs, where you know th- three all three. Uh, I'll call them acts of this film take place in uh, and around a stage uh, backstage in the auditorium. Um, it's all around the stage. And I think that's partly because Aaron Sorkin knows his way around a theater mm. um, and he uses the power dynamics of someone on stage and someone off stage and someone backstage. Like he uses those power dynamics really effectively to illustrate characters relationships and to, to have, you know, uh, jobs and was talk in the pit of the uh i guess it was the orchestra pit of the san francisco symphony i think yeah the san francisco opera or whatever you know like there's all these really really like they showcase a beautiful theaters and beautiful locations and also symbolically you know the the places things take place are really uh illustrate characters and uh, like i've said you know Mm -hmm. um so that's really cool to me um that aspect of Aaron Sorkin. I could talk and talk and talk about Aaron Sorkin. Do you have anything to say about Aaron Sorkin? I kind of want to go on a tangent about stages in this film. Go for it, yeah. Um, The stage is a really complex symbol in this film because it it, it sort of like symbolizes visibility. Um, But sometimes that'll give a character power and sometimes it won't and and, and will kind of do the opposite. I'm thinking especially of times when uh, the stage... Uh, puts additional pressure on a character who's like trying to hide something Um, and this is apparent in the first like the very first scene of the film um, 
uh, Steve and Andy Hertzfeld and uh, Steve's assistant, whose name I forget. I remember. Um, are, are, um, they're standing on stage facing the screen trying to get the computer to say hello, but can't let anybody know that the demo is broken. Yeah, there's um, the guy from GQ in the audience, and they have to keep yeah. their voices down or else uh-huh. because they're, yeah, they're prominently in the spotlight. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, like, to start with the stage as, like, this kind of, like, destabilizing element um, is, is, is really interesting to me because, like, Steve Jobs, like, does get a lot of power from the stage in this film, like, a lot of social power. And he wields that power over Waz later right. in their confrontation. He, like, makes everyone stay. He makes the guy from GQ stay on stage. He makes all the interns stay in the house. He, like, doesn't let anyone leave. And they obey that because he's, like, in the most visible and therefore powerful position. Yeah. You know, it's not, not that visibility necessarily means power, but he uses it to to control the room. Right. Yeah, he's really good at, at at using visibility for power, especially because he keeps the um, the reporter on stage, mm-hmm. um, so that like the reporter can see everything on the stage, but also everybody knows the reporter is there. Um, and especially Waz, you're right. like, don't say anything you're gonna regret having said on uh, on the record. Yeah. yeah, and it's 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 just like such a subtle like amplification of like jobs is like tactic at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's all about, he cares about visibility throughout the whole movie too. And he talks about like the cover of the magazine and he's, he's really mm-hmm. angry that it wasn't a Mac and that the, you know, that also, in well, addition, it, it, you know, also someone angry brought it. It wasn't him. Well, right. Yeah. Um, because like the cover of time magazine is also like kind of a stage. Yeah, it is. There's visibility there, um, 100%. That's really interesting. So, like, Aaron Sorkin then is is aware of the power dynamics of, like, the theater, specifically how the stage uh, and everyone's relation to the stage right. creates different power dynamics and how people can use the stage to wield power or somehow how sometimes how the stage can, can is, like, a vulnerable place, too, because yeah. everyone, like, has their eyes on you. If you are, if your computer isn't saying hello, uh-huh. everyone knows it. Okay, so back to Aaron Sorkin. Okay. Um, I have a huge respect for Aaron Sorkin as a screenwriter, as just like a writer in general of, of any dramatic writing. Because like I've said, he does stage plays and he's done um, mm-hmm. writing for the screen and for television and scripts. Um, and I mean, lots of people know Aaron Sorkin for his, like I said, really unique uh, dialogue, um, his style his tone with his dialogue is unmistakable Mm -hmm. but um Aaron Sorkin also does a lot of other elements of writing very well um it's funny because um like this is how much I respect Aaron Sorkin is that I actually bought his masterclass um on masterclass.com he was one of I think the earliest like masterclass people available to purchase and he's the only one whose class I've uh I've bought so I've watched all of Aaron Sorkin's masterclass (laughs) which I recommend. Um, it's great. He's so he's so funny and charming to listen to talk in real time because, like, obviously the way he speaks in real life is nothing like his dialogue. In right. fact, he's like pretty stilted. And <laughs> he, he, 
uh, folds in an argument, like a thing that folds easily. <laughs> she said in some like Conan interview or something. Yeah, he was on the talk show. He's 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 funny, but then also um, he talks in his master class about how when he was twenty one and living in New York City, sounds familiar. <laughs> um, he he was uh, he like just write and write and write on this typewriter fun dialogue that uh, he described as like didn't add up to anything. It would be really witty. It'd be like popcorny. It'd be uh, you know uh, fun dialogue that like didn't really result in a story. Um, so he talks about in his master class, like intention and obstacle as being, um, well, he uses mixed metaphors. He says it's the drive shaft of the story. He also calls it a closed line on which you can hang, um, the details of the stories you want to tell or any arguments you want to make in the story. Like he does in the West wing. Oh, all the time. Mm-hmm. The West wing. Yeah. Characters need to have, according to Sorkin, strong intentions and strong obstacles they're trying to overcome before you can build a story around that. Um, And that's interesting to me because Steve Jobs definitely has lots of really great dialogue, definitely has lots of really rich characters and interesting stories um, that are like woven through the film. Um, But I'm trying to put my finger on intentions and obstacles. Obviously, scene Mm -hmm. by scene, there are strong intentions. They want to fix the computer so it says hello. They want to, you know, Waz wants recognition for the Apple II team. There are Mm -hmm. obstacles in their way to each of those things, and they try and overcome those obstacles. And and in the case of the Hello Computer, they find a sneaky way to do it. In the case of Waz, he doesn't get that recognition in the end, we assume. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to think about Steve Jobs as a character. Like, what are his intentions? Mm. Um, You know, what are his obstacles in the film? If there's a through line for Steve Jobs as a character, what is the big thing that he wants? Because Aaron Sorkin describes in his masterclass, like, if you take a road trip across the country, you know, you have to have a really good reason to get there. You have a job interview. It's really important. You, your friend's wedding... Uh, is happening and you have to get there on time and like all kinds of things can happen on the road trip. But the point is you need to get to uh, the location uh, at Mm -hmm. a certain time on a certain day. Steve Jobs as a film feels like there's not really a high stakes goal um, that we are trying to reach. Um, Right. Which maybe has something to do with the fact that it's like structured in a way that's more artful and less sort of traditional Hollywood, but maybe it's, uh, maybe there is a character obstacle there that's really strong that is just sort of subtler, um, you know. In, in the way that you're framing it, it reminds me a bit of The Social Network, um, where I, I think I heard some interview with Aaron Sorkin. He said when he was writing that screenplay, he was like uh, not sure if there was a story there until he discovered this this conflict between um, what ended up being the 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 two main characters in the film um, because there was the, the whole lawsuit with the twin brothers. I don't remember anyone's name now. Oh, the Winklevoss twins? The, yeah, the Winklevoss <laughs> twins, those ones. <laughs> who are really only one person, one actor, who were cloned by David Fincher because David Fincher's amazing. Right. <laughs> um, um, I also can't come up with the name of the CEO of Facebook. <laughs> Zuck? Yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> yeah. It, it, okay, so... So Aaron Sorkin talked about uh, how, like, um, like there was this primary conflict between Mark Zuckerberg and, like, his friend in college. Um, and they were going to, like, found the company together. And then they sort of, like, 
uh, had a falling out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems like maybe there's like a similar structuring of the story in Steve Jobs where like maybe there's not really a story there, but there is the central conflict between Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of agree. I don't see a, a major goal there, but I, I think the development of that relationship where um, maybe uh, Steve Jobs sort of wants uh, notoriety and, and fame where Steve Wozniak wants a, a healthy relationship with his like creative partner and his business partner. Um, and those two things come into conflict and maybe that's like so, sort of where, where uh, uh, Sorkin is drawing that storyline. I don't know. I see. I, I, I'm interested. I think that the relationship between jobs and Woz is key to understanding Steve jobs as a character. I don't think uh, Steve jobs goal is fame. I don't think he wants to be celebrated um, he does say a lot, um, that he wants end to end control. Um, and mm-hmm. I think control is very important to, to Steve Jobs' character. I think Steve Jobs wants to create, uh, products that are paintings. I think he wants to design things for people, um, that are beautiful. And he probably wants to be recognized for his, uh, his identity as an artist, you know, he plays the orchestra, um, mm-hmm. and his products have any control and, uh, a computer is a painting. Um, I think he wants to make art out of, uh, the design technology to be artful. And I think, uh, he wants to be recognized for that. And if we look at his relationship with his daughter, it's really important to him that she makes a painting on his computer. Right. And that's the thing that he, you know, keeps in his pocket all those years that uh, means the most to him. And when he tries to reconcile his relationship with his daughter in the third act on the rooftop, um, the thing that, uh, the, the connection point he's able to find is when he points to her Walkman and she says, I'm going to put a thousand songs in your pocket. Um, it's making a beautiful product that people appreciate. Um, that is, that is the thing that I think he wants. Um, and he wants to have end to end control on that product. Uh-huh. He wants to be the one responsible for playing the orchestra. Um, and the other point of connection between, um, Steve and Lisa on that rooftop is that Lisa's writing stuff. Mm. Um, and Steve wants to see what she's writing because now she's like creating something that uh, I, I'm sure Steve believes like would be art um, in the way that like his computers are art. It's interesting because like uh, the, the, the Steve's damage um, in this film is that like he's, he's not a good father um, because of, uh, his like issues with his adoption. Um, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that like, uh, I mean, it, I think part of like him not being good, uh, as a father is that like, as a father, you like, you can't have end to end control. You can't uh, have end to end control over a human person. Of course. Um, yeah, he doesn't value things that he creates that like, uh, other people can go in and change and, and modify. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that's probably behind why he gets so offended when Andy Hertzfeld, uh, pays, uh, for his daughter's college expenses because mm-hmm. he wants end to end control. Um, yeah. and yeah, it's also probably like why he's offended when, uh, Lisa's mom like sells her house for like less than he would have sold it for. Mm-hmm. 
um, because he wants to have end-to-end end control of that house that he bought. But yeah, he doesn't get to. He still claims ownership on this house that he gave her, uh, yeah. and his daughter's like, "It's mom's house. She can do with it what she, what he what she wants." Uh -huh. But for some reason, Steve still wants to make decisions about this house that, like, you know, he technically gave away, uh -huh. just like he gives and, away his products and doesn't right. let people make changes to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I mean, it, it, that's Steve Jobs' whole character arc is, like, wanting control over the things that he makes, and the obstacles to that are that, like, well, you can't uh, have end-to-end -end control over people that you make, yeah. um, and you have to allow for other people to see things differently and have different values and do things that you may not have done um, because uh, you can't have end-to-end -end control over your daughter or yeah. your wife or uh, the mother of your daughter. Right. And you certainly can't have end-to-end -end control over your fellow collaborators. Yeah, over Waz. Yeah. This is what makes Aaron Sorkin just a really great writer, is in addition to all of his great, really snappy dialogue, he's got really strong through lines, characters with really strong intentions and values that you can see play out in various situations. And even though this film doesn't have like a, 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 a traditional plot, um, there are like character beats that we hit where we get to tease out emotional, like things that are emotionally important about the character and the values that they hold and the way that they respond to different situations that just create a really nuanced and beautiful uh, portrait painting if mm. you will of uh, of a character yeah i mean i totally agree one concept that's like pretty fundamentally related to this idea of control um is the idea of frames or like the imagery or the symbolism of frames um within uh, the frame of the film um and I, I, I think the one of the more like interesting um, presentations uh, of a frame is um, in Steve's glasses, um, which of course are not framed themselves, but are lenses uh, through which Steve, Steve sees like uh, everything um, in the world. Uh, and that they're, they're uh, I mean, glasses are a way of controlling um, really one's perception of the world around them. Um, oh, interesting. And they like, uh, there's this concept of like reality distortion field. As um, in Steve's reality distortion field? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like his glasses are like a reality distortion oh, interesting. field. Um, and, and, and like for, for a character to like always be looking through a lens which changes the world around them into something that will like look easier or better or nicer to them is is i mean it's like highly symbolic of like a, a more like psychological reality distortion field and also like it's intimately related to the act of watching a film um because of course you're always looking through a screen um through a frame which changes the way that you see uh, the images. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's interesting. I think Steve Jobs doesn't have glasses through the whole film. I think he gains them in maybe Act 3, even. Oh. I don't think he starts with glasses. I could be misremembering, but I think Act 1, he doesn't have any glasses on. Interesting. Well, I, I only uh, noticed them consciously in Act 3, so you, you may be right about that. Yeah, but of course, there's lots of lots of different frames that he looks through anyway and, um, right. and looks past and into it. In fact, the first uh, time we see Steve Jobs is him looking into the camera as if it's the computer screen um, that he's mm. peering into. Mm -hmm. So 100%, there's like this 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 metaphor of the 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 silver screen being 
uh, a common frame through which we can both look. And um, if you go back and watch the opening scene of Steve Jobs, you'll see that like they're all crowded around. Uh, Andy and, and Steve and Joanna are all crowded around the, this computer screen trying to make it say hello. And we are the computer screen they're looking into. Mm. So that concept of frames is planted, I think, from the very moment we're introduced to the character. Um, and yeah, and then of course there's like the, the frames of the computers, the technology, there's the, the, the frames of his glasses he looks through. And then Steve is also constantly looking through mirrors mm-hmm. in like dressing rooms. Even if he doesn't have glasses in act one, he spends a lot of his time in his dressing room looking at his clothing, looking, uh, at other people through the mirrors. Uh-huh. Um, and act two and act three, of course, too, there's lots of mirrors in both of those two. Um, yeah. Sometimes we start a scene looking through a mirror and we don't realize we're looking through a mirror until we pull away. And mm-hmm. there's like all of this they're, like... They're like coming up the stairs in, in the second place. Um, I don't remember which one it is, but yeah. Yeah. We're not, we don't realize the reality is being distorted by a mirror until we pull away from it. Um, uh-huh. Oh, that's so interesting. There's a really special moment in Act 3 that stands out to me when Steve takes off his glasses. Mm. Um, and he's, he's, he's rubbing, you know, his, his, the, the, the bridge of his nose and he's trying to remember, uh, details about processors and so forth. And Mm -hmm. then we get like flashbacks to, uh, a a young, his younger daughter, um, in that moment when his glasses are off. Mm -hmm. Um, and so maybe that's tied to, you know, this, this reality distortion idea where like, if he were to remove the lenses through which he sees, uh, the world, he's able to like, remember things more clearly, Mm -hmm. um, and things that he might've forgotten. Like the fact that the Time magazine, you know, was a sculpture, and right, <laughs> and they were never thinking of putting him in that frame in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, really, in that moment, he's sort of like choosing to relinquish some of his control over the world. I think by taking off his glasses and by like closing his eyes, doesn't? Oh yeah, right. Like that's a thing that you do when you take off your glasses, you rub the bridge of your nose, and you you kind of like close your eyes and like let them rest for a while mm-hmm. um and, and so he he's relinquishing like his reality distortion field and his control and he's able to remember things and maybe remember them differently and re- remember like this child not as like a person to be controlled and a person to lie to so she doesn't think too highly of her place in Steve's mind, but like someone that like, maybe he should actually like uh, communicate to her that like she matters to her. She, she matters to him. And like the Lisa was named after her, (laughs) you know? Yeah. There's a great example of reality distortion field is like local integrated system architecture is Uh (laughs) like complete nonsense. Yeah. He just totally lied to her about that. Uh, And I think he believed what he was saying was true. Like, I think, uh, I think he, when he was younger felt justified in explaining to her that Lisa does not stand for her name and it's not based off her. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's what makes it easy for him to try to control people is because he controls all of reality for himself. Mm. And so, you know, he doesn't even feel like he's lying. He feels like it's the truth because he's convinced himself that this lie is true. Um, and that his, these memories he has were a certain way when they weren't, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the thing that, that the, the thing he has to do in order to overcome, uh, this reality distortion he's built for himself is, um, to like really, uh, self-reflect. Um, and, 
that's another really key moment for me in the movie that has to do with frames is like he's looking in mirrors all through the film, but he's not really looking at himself. He doesn't lock eyes with himself at any point in the movie. He mm-hmm. looks at his clothing. He's putting on makeup. Um, he's checking just to make sure his appearance um, is good, right? Uh-huh. He makes sure he appears good. And he's he's making sure that like this... I mean, his parent, his appearance is also something that he's crafting, um, and he's making sure that like the thing that he has crafted is working properly. The computer is beige. The disc is, uh, uh, I can't remember the color of the blue, disc. Blue, 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 blue. The, yeah, the computer is beige. The disc is blue. I'm beige. <laughs> the shirt is white. Where it's like the appearance yeah. is really important, and he is himself a painting that he's designing that he has end-to-end control over. Right. And he doesn't look at himself in a mirror until in that moment in act three, right after he's taken off his glasses, he does look himself in the mirror uh, when uh, his CEO is, is, is coming in the door. Um, he's looking at himself in the mirror and he locks eyes with himself for just the briefest of moments mm. and then gets pulled away in this other conversation. And it's the only moment Steve Jobs looks at himself in a mirror the entire movie. And it's such a crucial point if you're paying close attention mm-hmm. to his relationship with those mirrors and those frames. Um, that pays off so, so much. And that's what one of those things I mean when I said, like, this movie's really specific in ways that rewards you for watching closely. Right. That's one of those moments where just that small detail illustrates so much about the character's arc and, and uh, where they've come. Yeah. It's really incredible. It just blows my mind how detailed this film is and how many symbols and, and how much imagery and just like really small creative choices are woven through the film that end up having an impact on the picture you get of the characters in it. Because this is a biopic. Um, it's basically like a character study of Steve Jobs. And not only is it just like, we don't we don't only learn about Steve Jobs through the dialogue, through the things he says, and not only through his actions, the things he does. We also learn about him through, like you said, frames. We learn about him through uh, uh, a lot of other things too, um, such as uh, exit signs. It's such a small thing, but like Steve Jobs wants end-to-end control. He mm-hmm. wants a closed system, and uh, exit signs are one of those things where, like, uh, in the movie, he wants to be able to control the exit signs, um, which of course is against fire regulations, and he isn't legally allowed to do that, uh, and eventually gets to do that because he becomes Steve Jobs, uh-huh. uh, the Steve Jobs that we sort of cultural we know as like this this behemoth of a of a you know yeah the Steve Jobs who wanted to build Apple Park and just went to the Cupertino like board and went this is what I would like to build and everyone was like okay <laughs> <laughs> you can't really do whatever you want at this point Steve Jobs yeah. um, so he becomes that and so he's able to like in the power he gains he's able to sort of dictate reality in a way that makes it harder for him to confront his reality distortion field Mm -hmm. because eventually the exit signs bend to his will the fire regulations aren't relevant anymore because steve jobs is steve jobs at that Mm -hmm. point um but it's funny because uh you know that's not the only significance that exit signs have in the film throughout the film we see exit signs all over the place um uh and i think that's intentional uh, it may be a consequence of just being in a theater, but I think we're also are we 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 end up having scenes in front of corridors and barriers and thresholds that are marked with exit signs. Mm. The entire film, uh, we're just presented with a barrage of exit signs that I think uh, just sort of uh, remind us of the fact that Steve has a choice um, at any time. He can choose to step away from. 
the character he's chosen for himself and the, the way he digs himself further and further into his own flaws. He can step away from those things at any time. I think the exit signs just sort of, in a, in, a, in a subtle way, remind us that there's exits all over the place. You're not trapped in this uh, mm. in these thing, this life you've chosen for yourself, Steve. And he like desperately wants not to see those uh, those those exit opportunities. But <laughs> right, he wants them to be turned off. Yeah, <laughs> he wants to. <laughs> there wants there to be no exit. Uh huh. That's a great play by Jean Paul Sartre, by the way. Uh, no exit. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, Steve Jobs doesn't want any of the exit signs to be there because he wants this really like dramatic or or like spectacular even uh, moment. Um, in the the unveiling where it all uh, blacks out and you just see the computer, right? Yeah, that's like the literal reason. We can infer right. all kinds of things about his character about for that. For sure, but, for yeah. sure. But then, like, the other, like, part of that, like, literal reason is is it, it, it kind of relates to this thing that, like, you pointed out when we were watching it. But it, it, it's this idea of the audience being a roller coaster. Um, and they're sort of, like, on this... I mean, a roller coaster is like sort of a spectacular experience in the first place. Like it's all about, yeah, it's thrilling. It's Mm -hmm. about the spectacle. Um, And uh, Steve Jobs sort of orchestrates that uh, roller coaster type sensation, but so does like the camera. Um, And uh, I don't know if you want to like speak to some more of that. Yeah, well, I feel like the camera. I, I feel like the camera doesn't create the roller coaster. I think the camera illustrates the fact that Steve Jobs is creating a thrill ride for the audience. And I think we know that, like, it's, it becomes clear to us that these product launches are carefully crafted uh, uh, experiences that the audience are going to have, uh-huh. from the exit signs, the computer saying hello, to you know what we see at the end of the film, this grandiose, really big video introduction, uh, and the audience cheering and the strobe lights. I think it's it is spectacular. I think it's a thrill ride, and I think it's what's Steve is designing as a painting in a way for uh-huh. the audience, but the camera illustrates the fact that the audience is on a roller coaster through movement. Um, the camera is always coming up over things. Like it happens in Act Three, I think the camera just pedestals right up over the uh, the the projector screen and and arrives and sort of tilts down to look at the the audience there as yeah. a roller coaster would climbing its first hill. I think it's the second act where the camera pedestals up because I think we're seeing the back of the clouds. Oh, so yeah, we see yeah. the clouds from both sides and then in the third act we sort of start to tilt down and start the roller coaster. Uh-huh, cresting at the top of the first uh-huh. hill. Yeah, yeah. And of course people are like pounding their feet as well, which is very much like a, a roller coaster rumbling uh uh, you know, on on his ride, and we 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 experience that from below when Joanna and, and Jobs are in the hallway beneath, and the whole auditorium begins uh, rumbling. Uh, you know, because I think it's roller coaster like. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and even shots of the audience itself, like we do this weird like Dutch tilt uh thing where the camera is spinning all around, and and we're a little disoriented as uh-huh. you would be on some kind of corkscrew. Uh-huh. Um, and I think if you were to look uh, back to back to back at all of the moments where we see the audience, you could you could you could really paint a picture using that camera movement about roller coasters and um it's an interesting thing to note uh just the, the fact that 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 is there yeah and it and i think it all like culminates really well in this final sequence um where uh steve jobs walks on stage and lisa is backstage and you get this like pretty like theatrical even like spectacular thrilling but also like theatrical lighting something you'd see like in some like 
super overproduced like Broadway musical, like King Kong or something. <laughs> we got like all these like flashing lights, bright like I don't know who set up that lighting or rig. Maybe but even a time. rock concert. Like yeah. I think it may be more akin to going and seeing a huge concert. Uh, you know, of really super famous musicians. Uh huh. And and Steve like Steve plays the orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> And there's this like whole the the sense of the roller coaster is just so heightened at that point. It contrasts starkly. Like it is, it's like almost in opposition to this really intimate moment between um, Steve and Lisa. And mm. like it just makes that sort of conclusion of that like father daughter uh, relationship mm. just like that much more gratifying because you know that like like it is like so different from this other like persona and this other life that that um um steve jobs has like created for himself yeah and the the intimacy of that moment is like illustrated and amplified by its contrast to the enormous scope of the auditorium and right. the thrill yeah, yeah. ride that people are going on. So it seems all that more personal mm -hmm. um, because the rest of it is just, you know, it's like a big concert. There's just a big audience, a sea of people. And then uh -huh. here's one person and, right. and she has her dad's attention. Uh, you know, when he has all of their attention, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, just, Oh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. We talked about Bandersnatch last week and how much we, uh, I <laughs> didn't, I talked a lot about how I didn't feel it justified its, 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 its spectacular, uh, claims. Um, and I, you know, this is a moment where spectacle I think is so justified by the story and the characters behind it and mm -hmm. it's earned and it's used to, uh, just make uh, this dynamic ever so much more so um, as opposed to just use it as like distraction and uh, just something to keep you watching. You know, this is like, oh, everything pays off with this big spectacular ending. Okay, so, so obviously we, we really enjoy this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love this film. Oh, my gosh. I, I hope you enjoy it as well, or at least enjoyed um, us talking about it, maybe found something else to love about it. Yeah, hopefully you are. have already seen it. Um, if you yeah. haven't yet, uh, or if you'd like to watch it again, uh, I totally recommend watching it with us because we're fun to watch movies with. Yeah. I think this film was really funny. We had a bunch of popcorn, and like Mallory got a kernel stuck in her tooth, and it was a whole, was a a whole, whole drama there. Yeah. So if you want to be a part of that, uh, you can come and subscribe. Uh, come be a patron on our Patreon. On. It's five dollars a month, just five bucks a month, um, and you can have access to our companion podcast, Close yeah. Viewers. And you'll have a reason to watch a movie every single week. That's right, and you can watch it with people who really love movies and are really into the things we're watching together, yeah. um, and who Absolutely. comment as we go. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you get to be nerd out with us, uh, five bucks a month, and we also have uh, like outtakes from this show and f bonus segments that were kind of cut for time. Yeah, um, that didn't make it into this one, but which are still great segments. Um, just didn't have time for. Yeah. And if you want to email us, if you want to just say hi or ask a question or uh, make a correction uh, or um, <laughs> <laughs> suggest a movie that you think we should watch because yes. you really, really love it, you I can totally email us at areyouwatchingcloselypodcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to get back to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We have so many emails. We have no emails. Someone email us. We'd love to hear from you. We want to talk with you. We want to hear what you love. And yeah. uh, learn about who is listening to this podcast that uh -huh. we send into the void. <laughs> In 
while we're soliciting your random thoughts, leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you found us. Mm-hmm. Um, that would totally help us out. It'll help other people find this podcast. <laughs> well, this has been our episode, Breaking Down Steve Jobs, written by Aaron Sorkin, starring Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet and uh, among others. Uh, Jeff Daniels. Um, so this has been our episode about it. Uh, thanks for listening to all our thoughts about Steve Jobs. Uh, Are You Watching Closely is uh, produced by yours truly, Spencer Channel. Um, I also write all the music uh, for the show and I have so far done all the editing. The cover art is designed by Spencer Channel and me, Mallory Strom. The photo in the cover art is by Spencer Channel. Yeah, those thanks for listening and I have been uh, <laughs> and will continue to be <laughs> Spencer Channel. And I remain Mallory Strom. <laughs> Hopefully into perpetuity. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>